Hi everybody and welcome to the Golders Podcast, where we aim to sprinkle particles of knowledge by engaging and educating. With your co-hosts, father and son duo, Keith and David Mayer. We're excited to have you on this journey with us and we know our wide variety of world-class guests will provide lots of value for our listeners. To ensure you stay up to date with everything we've got going on on the podcast, make sure you subscribe. Before we introduce today's guest, Again, we would like to ask that if you're enjoying the podcast or you've enjoyed a particular episode or if you enjoy this episode that you're about to listen to, that you leave a review for us. It means a lot to us to read those reviews and see the ratings that keep coming in on the podcast. Now, today we welcome onto the Goldust podcast the first and only person to ever run a marathon in every country in the world. Nick Butters, an endurance athlete, motivational speaker and author, and on November the 10th, 2019, Nick completed the astonishing record of becoming the first person ever to run a marathon in all 196 countries on the planet. This journey around the world led Nick to broken bones, muggings at gunpoint, being locked up, being shot at, and much more. The endless tales of Perseverance and resilience led Nick to accomplish a dream, but he didn't stop there. Nick has recently ran 100 marathons in 100 days around Italy, and since we spoke to him, he's now about to embark on his newest challenge, running 200 marathons in 100 days around the coast of Britain, which starts on April 17th. Follow Nick's journey at Nick Butter Run on Twitter and on Instagram and follow his new charity 196 Challenge which he launched in conjunction with the project he's now taken. Nick, thank you and welcome to the Golders podcast. It's great to have you on today. No, thank you very much for having me on. I'm looking forward to getting stuck into uh, to all things all things running, adventure, travel. We've got a lot to cover. We do. We'll, we'll jump straight into it. For those who are less familiar with who you are, can you just share a little bit about your background? I, uh, yeah, where do I start? I like running, I suppose, just in a nutshell. Um, no, so my, my background, I started running, I suppose, when I was very young, when I was about 11 years old, um, some decent distances, probably a little bit more than most people. Obviously, cross-country plays a part when you're at school. Um, but then my love of kind of sport overtook my academia. I was never, you know, sport was always my strength as opposed to academia. And so I did a lot of sport at school, whether that be cycling, badminton, tennis, whatever it may be. And ultimately, I, I then went on and, and did a little bit of skiing as well, joining the under-19s um, snow sports ski team. Um, and that's where my kind of love of sport really kicked off. But I then also had my parents on my on my shoulders telling me that sport doesn't pay a lot of money and should probably get a real job, son, which um, which I listened to them. Uh, and then I, I, I got into I got into banking. I went into finance to earn a little bit of money, which ultimately, as it increases the bank balance, it kind of degrades your soul a little bit. Um, and so I decided to kind of start running really for a bit of therapy and that's when I picked running back up again it's not a case that I've been overly passionate with running all of my life it was loved running loved sport and then dropped it a little bit and then picked it back up I suppose in my early 20s um, 
and and then after that everything just got a little bit out of control and I started to run further ran a few races marathons ultra marathons um and I started to really appreciate the love of the freedom and the peace and the solitude and the the calmness and almost therapy like nature of, of running um and then I had a for very fortunate actually to have a few really good bosses who who allowed me to do a little bit more running away from work um, and then that opened up an opportunity to be sponsored by a few athletes, uh, sorry, by a few brands. Uh, and then from there, it, it snowballed even further when I was running out in the, in the Marathon de Saab infinite seven day race through the Sahara Desert in Morocco. Um, and I met this guy called Kevin. And then from there, everything spiraled into to this running the world adventure. We'll delve into a little bit more around Kev a little bit later on. But uh, you broke a world record uh, for being the first person to run, I can't get my head around it, 196 marathons in every country of the world uh, were recognised mm. by the United Nations. In actual fact, you yeah. ran 211 consecutive marathons, <laughs> which is 80 more, uh, yeah. for uh, future proofing. Now, yeah, after so completing the marathon... Uh, after completing the marathon of your epic journey, can you recount how it felt when you crossed the finishing line? Yeah, crossing that line, I mean, you know, a marathon in every country in the world it takes a lot of, not just physical effort, but a lot of people and a lot of in, you know, kind of a combined effort of friendships of people I'd never met, of people that were on the sidelines, but really pulling the strings and making sure everything was kind of in motion. So crossing that finish line after 674 days away, I, I was absolutely A, relieved, B, elated. There was obviously the endorphins of having run a marathon. And, and also the other side of it was, was sadness and the almost, almost mundane in a sense, because I, I was so used to running marathon after marathon that, that it was just another marathon. Um, and then it's kind of dawned on me that I'd literally ran out of countries. You know, there wasn't any more countries to go and run in, and that was it. And, and so, in a way, it was almost like a, a farewell to, to the journey that I'd been on. Um, and it was one that completely changed my personality, my outlook on life, my perspective and context of the whole world uh, and the people in it and how we all in, interconnected with one another. And so crossing that finish line was a whole mixed bag of euphoria and... Uh, and just relief. And, and fortunately, I, I managed to cross that finish line with obviously a dear friend of mine, uh, Kevin Weber, who was the whole inspiration behind this journey. And so, so he was there at, on that day. Hmm. Now, in terms of running this event, you mentioned Kevin, you met him in, uh, while you were doing the Marathon de Sable and things hmm. snowballed from there. But what inspired you in the first place to undertake some such a a mammoth task really what some people would say is probably a little bit crazy yeah i think it's a little bit crazy and i like that because you know who wants to go and do something that's already been done or i, I quite like the fact that not only were we going to be you know claiming a few world records but we were going to be doing something that nobody had ever even attempted to do it's not like somebody's tried it and then not not managed to do it it was just nobody's even dreamt that it was possible which i kind of thought was was pretty cool and i think to answer your question in a completely honest way it was a combination of wanting to live by what Kev was explaining to me when we went out and 
uh, you know, he told me that he's, he, was, he was dying, he had two years to live, he was dying with prostate cancer. And he said, you know, don't wait for a diagnosis, don't wait for something to happen in your life to, to make a change. And so that then sparked this, sparked this journey for me to really realize the value that I had and the opportunity and almost a responsibility I had to the world, the other people that maybe don't have the freedoms that we do and the opportunities. And then I also wanted to make sure that I was not only living by what Kev was teaching me and, and living by his counsel, but it was also making sure that it ticked the right boxes for him as well. So I wanted to raise the money for, for Prostate Cancer UK. I wanted to go and travel. I wanted to run. I wanted to meet people. And then so what, what, I, what was I going to do? You know, it wasn't a case of an instant idea. I'm going to run around the world. You know, what can I do to live by what is kept saying and do some good for the charity? And so we had to think of something that was big enough um, as in duration long enough in order to capture the imagination of the world and the public. Because if I just done something that was maybe a week long, very impressive maybe i did all of those miles in just a week we still wouldn't have had the awareness or the donations because we needed the length of time i also wanted it to be global because i wanted it to kind of be universal i think running is a very universal community and so we wanted it to be to be global and then i just happened to stumble upon the fact i googled it nobody had run a marathon in every country in the world and at that point I just thought it was mad that, you know, we put people on the moon and nobody had run a marathon in every country in the world. We've been literally to, a, to other, other moons and planets and we haven't done this on our own planet. And, and now I realise quite why that has happened because it's quite difficult to run a marathon in every country in the world. Um, but yeah, so, so that's, I suppose that's, that's how it all came about. And yeah, and, and like we said, it took, took me two years of planning and working out how we were going to go about doing that and to get to the start line. And we'll, we will touch on some of the places you went to and what you experienced, but you mentioned it briefly in your last answer, uh, prostate cancer. So you yeah. raised money. Can you touch on that a little bit more? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So, so prostate cancer specifically, I haven't really, obviously I'd heard of it. I suppose I would say I'd heard of it in passing. Um, obviously there's a lot of horrible, evil cancers out there. But prostate cancer, I had no idea, was such a substantial killer of men, not just in the UK, but around the world. It's one in eight white men and one in four black men worldwide. Um, and in the UK, there's just over 12,000 men that die of prostate cancer every year. And what's so sad about this particular cancer is that, and this was all, you know, I learned this since meeting Kev, because there was, those words never came out of my mouth. Prostate cancer just was never something that I thought about until meeting Kev, and now it's, you know, what I think about quite a lot. And I now understand that prostate cancer is really a killer because of the way in which men have with the stigma and the embarrassment and the shame. Because, let's face it, 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 it involves your bum. It talks about your bum, and we don't want to talk about it. And so men don't go and get checked. They don't go to the doctors they ultimately sit on it quite literally and they and they don't they're too afraid to talk about it and men don't talk about that in the pub and it was okay for women to talk about breast cancer because there was plenty of campaigns done about it and I, to be honest i think women are just better at talking about that stuff and so we discovered that so many of these men that were dying from prostate cancer were dying because they just were ignoring signs and not going and getting themselves checked so my message to everybody is if you're a man and you're over 40 years old, you must have your prostate checked every single year because it can literally creep up on you and it can be a goner, which is exactly what happened with Kev. If you catch it early, the chances of you living are massive. If you catch it late, the chances of you dying are massive, which 
is really quite scary and it's it's quite evil in that way because we have the science there to prevent you from dying from it if you catch it early the science is, is already there you just have to go and get checked um, and it's a simple blood test now which is which is brilliant um, and there's lots of initiatives springing up all over the country and, and this money that we were raising was to initiate uh, a, a nationwide scheme where men could go and get themselves checked uh, for free and easily um, and so I think my message is just men need to talk about it more. Don't be ashamed about it. And if you're not a man and you're not over 40, then the chances are, you know, somebody who is. So have that have that awkward conversation. Who cares if it's awkward, if it's going to save their life? Um, and I'm very, con very conscious now that whenever I meet people like you guys and anybody I speak to, it's something that is worth talking about because it could just save somebody's life. And fortunately, having traveled the world and talking about it a lot, I've had lots of lovely emails where people have emailed me to say, I got checked and I had prostate cancer, but I'm okay because I got it. I got checked early. And so it's, it's incredibly powerful. And, and Kev started that journey. He was diagnosed with less than two years to live from his diagnosis. And amazingly now he's, he's in year six um, and he's on what he calls a drug roulette, just lots of drugs. And one day those drugs are not going to work anymore. But for the moment, he's just incredibly grateful for the science that we've got. And, uh, and he's going to carry on doing whatever he can. It's a wonderful message and uh, very well put. And thank you for that wonderful share. Now, coming back to the your run, you, you set off. Uh, you've obviously, uh, on the 6th of January uh, 2018, yeah. you set off for Canada. A little incident as you got to Canada prior to getting to Canada, as I understand, and you can obviously share that one with us. But uh, you ran in some hospitable places. Uh, I'm sure. And can you share with some, can you share with us some of those experiences that you encountered? Yeah, gosh, where do I start? I think we'll be here for weeks. The, the amount of, the amount of kind of ups and downs we had, I think the overarching experience was one of just sheer kind of awesome and, and, and wonder of, of what was happening to me, both positive and negative. You know, we, we planned this journey and on day one, you know, I flew my brother and my parents and I went to the airport and we flew from, from the UK, I believe it was Heathrow, to, to Toronto, Pearson International Airport, Canada. Um, and just by coincidence, the only aviation incident it, that was happening around, that, around the world at that time, the only plane crash that was happening anywhere, happened to be the one airport that I was flying to. Fortunately, nobody was injured, but having you know, rocked up at a service station to get some snacks uh, for the journey, uh, on the way to the airport, we saw on the news that Toronto Pearson International had this incident and I was supposed to be flying there. And, and obviously I had 10 or 11 months of flights booked and many flights to get to, to different countries. And so we thought, oh, my word, is this really happening? Two years of planning and then we're going to be stuck by, by, a, uh, by an airport shutting down. But fortunately, that worked. We got there. I then discovered that it was outrageously cold, um, much more cold than we, when we, than we anticipated. It was minus 25 degrees C, and we expected it to only be about minus 5 or minus 10. Um, I had none of the right gear I needed um, and had to kind of borrow stuff from either reporters or people that I'd met in the hotel. Um, and before I knew it, I was stepping out to run my first marathon of obviously 196 plus some extras. And... I, I then understood and realized that I hadn't actually run more than about a half marathon distance for a few months because I'd broken my ankle um, back in September. Um, and since then, I've just buried my head in planning and working out on the trip and, you know, stepping out of that door in that hotel in Toronto 
I then realized, oh dear, I probably should have done a little bit more running. Um, but, but fortunately it went well and the 400 odd marathons I already had under my belt kind of served me well to get through the first few weeks and kind of get my head in the game. But that, I mean, that's the start of what I could end up talking about. You know, I was, I was mugged at knife point and at gunpoint. Um, I was hit by a car. I had a very close call with a cheetah, which I, in my speaking to, I share the video, which is me incredibly close to a wild cheetah and, and, and very nearly ending, ending my world in a horrible way. Um, but fortunately we survived that one as well. Um, I had a minor heart attack in the, in the Pacific Islands. Um, I was bitten by a dog. Uh, I had something like 22 different marathons with food or different bouts of food poisoning and 34 marathons with them. Loads of days where I didn't end up eating any food whatsoever because uh, of the timings, because of where the country I was going into or losing my wallet or all sorts of stuff. Basically anything that could have gone wrong other than dying happened. You know, it was it was pretty horrendous and scary and, you know, awful situations going into Yemen where where we had people smuggling in goods and using me as a mule to get into Yemen and it was and I even had a driver that we'd hired to, to drive me into Syria um, and we rocked up in Beirut to, to go overland on a, in, a, in a taxi and the day before horrendously that driver that we'd hired actually got shot and killed doing the same journey with another client um, and it was so real you know you could read about it you can read about all these war zones on the news but actually being there and driving around flaming roadblocks coming out of Beirut into into Syria that was very real and the fear I can assure you was was bubbling away. I can imagine well by actually completing the record there must have been so many life lessons that that you picked up about humanity the environment and especially about yourself and in the the trip Overall, there was 455 flights. You ran through 15 yeah. war zones, which you've mentioned a couple of names, and then you did get mugged twice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, what What did you learn in this whole ex- experience that you had? I, there's an awful lot of learnings. The, the The most profound, uh, obvious, and immediate kind of very impactful learning that I had, which was on a day to day basis was that my preconceptions of countries that, that I, I thought I knew of. So whether that be France or whether that be Yemen, if you think of those places, you think of maybe the capital cities, what it may look like on the streets, you make images in your mind. If you've been there, then you have memories. If you haven't been there, then you probably use either anecdotes or news, news channel stories. And for a lot of the war zones, obviously most of those stories coming out of those places are negative and they're about people dying and, and war and, and terror and fear. And so you go into those countries with those preconceptions. But what my experience was, is I would say, without exaggerating, 95% of the time, I experienced the opposite of what I was anticipating. So whether it be expecting a beautiful, clear, sunny beach with white sands and palm trees, like I was expecting in, let's say, the Bahamas, for example. Um, I got there, and in the Bahamas, it was torrential rain and a giant flood. And so you then realize that actually the world is, is all connected and you can experience all of these different, different things. And so I certainly felt as I was going through the trip, having to remind myself, remember that Syria, Yemen, Libya, Iran, wherever I may be going, remember that it might not be how I'm anticipating it. It might be exactly right, 
but you don't know that. And so my preconceptions, that, that, was, that was one big thing that happened on a day-to-day -day basis that I learned about. And, and the other thing was that people are fundamentally the most magical, wonderful things that the universe has ever created. Human beings are absolutely essential to the happiness and the, the way in which we, we kind of uh, use this planet. And again, with the environmental factors, I think there's a lot of people that would say, if we take away humans, then the planet will be better off. But I tell you what, the combination with a beautiful planet and amazing civilization of mankind, um, I feel incredibly honored and humbled by the amount of people that I've met around the world that are completely selfless um, and have and would give anything to anybody and help anybody. Um, and that's not the story you get from the news. I said during my trip a few times to a few news stations, I wish there would be a news station out there that just focused on the good stuff that's happening in the world because there's so much good stuff. Um, and and I, I did come away from it expecting to be kind of scared of war zones. And, and what I actually feel is that there are amazing people everywhere. Um, and we, we just have this whole world to explore. And I, and I hope, I hope that everybody has the, the chance to do so. So, I mean, I could carry on. There's a load of lessons I learned. Um, but those, those are two of the, the, the standout ones. When you, we come round to the running aspect of it now, because the, Sounds like it was a, a, quite a spiritual event and experience for you. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was, the, the running, uh, running is my mode of transport, you know, it's, it's, it, I don't have a bike and so therefore running seems like a good alternative, um, a lot easier, a lot cheaper, unless you try and run around the world, of course. Um, and generally speaking, running is a slower pace to most kind of most sports. You know, even if you're playing football or you're playing squash or something like that, you're quite quite fast paced. Or even something like snooker, for example, which isn't fast paced, but you are very focused on what you're doing. And I suppose you would very rarely be able to take in your surroundings. And obviously, the surroundings wouldn't be as pretty as as as, as how you get with running. And so, I feel like running is is incredibly spiritual. Um, because of the pace, it allows you to see stuff slower. You know, I arrived in a country, every single country that I went to that I'd not been to before. I was a stranger. I knew nothing about the, the cultures or the, um, the kind of conformities that you're supposed to apply to, uh, uh, comply with. And I, I then learned that running around a city for 26 miles, you do truly get a sense of the place and the country and its people. You know, you understand if people smile back at you, you understand if you can step out in the road and cars will stop. You know, there's places, whole entire countries without traffic lights, without roads. And so you start to experience this, this beautiful journey on foot. Um, and obviously there's a hell of a lot to be said about what running does to the physical body and mind um, and releasing endorphins and having that kind of calming, therapeutic, almost sorting out all the jumble in your head and your heart um, and running was definitely that I mean don't get me wrong with a, a lot of high temperatures you know 40 odd degrees in most of the African countries um, a lot of humidity in Asia obviously the freezing colds of the likes of of Russia or Canada um, and then obviously you've got the extreme heat of somewhere like Kuwait all of that stuff does take a, a battering when you're running but running in general is a is a very calming and therapeutic uh, yeah process once you've once you've done a few miles and you and you can kind of forget about the suffering element mm. well funny you mentioned that because i was just about to ask something related to it now running a marathon and really doing any sort of physical activity where you push yourself is not easy and there mm. has to be a point where people may go i don't fancy it today 
or this is hard, but yet yeah. they keep going. So for you personally, when you set off and take your first step on every marathon you do, what is it that keeps you moving forward? Very good point. I think it's very easy to have the motivation. A lot of people ask me about, or oh, how do you keep motivated? And in all honesty, there are, I would say, 80% of those days on running the world, I woke up not wanting to get out of bed and run. That's not to say I didn't want to be running. It was I didn't want to have that transition between horizontal to vertical to getting out. That's the hardest bit. Um, and so there's definitely a, a difference there between not wanting to get out of bed because you're knackered and also you still want to be running. Um, and so my motivation is simple. If, if not running, if not this, then what? And the answer is, well, I'd probably have to have a real job. I'd probably have to not see the world. I'd probably have to not experience every country on the planet. And so it's very easy to go, oh, yeah, I've got food poisoning now and I've done 150 marathons and I'm in a war zone and it's 40 degrees outside. And you know what? Let's just hit pause and not do this. But that's the whole point. You know, that's the whole point is that this is my entire job. As When the going gets tough, that's when my job kicks in. Otherwise, I'm just a, a fun runner, if you like. And so you do have to remind yourself that I'm having this incredible fortunes of being able to see all these beautiful places and meet these people. Um, and at the worst case, I just, I'm a bit tired or feel a bit ill. Like that's not bad. There's a lot of people in the world. We're talking tens of millions of people that have to run because that's their living. They have to go in and find a way to find food. They have to find water. Um, and they don't have the options of, of the freedoms that we do, you know? And, and it can be said, there's a beautiful ratio and I can't remember the name of it, but it's something about how many guitars there are in the world. And that directly correlates to how many people have the freedom to choose to express themselves through music. Because if you have a guitar and you can play a guitar, then what, you're, what you've got fundamentally is you've got food, you've got shelter, you've got warmth, you've got family, you've got all of that sorted. And now you're choosing to, to do extra stuff. And so that's a correlation between how free the world is. And so that's my motivation. It's like, you know, if not this, then, then actually, uh, where would I be? What would I be doing? And the answer is that always, let's get out of bed and go for a run. Yeah. And when we spoke previously, you said something that stuck with me. We all have an opportunity to appreciate what we have. What do you mean? What does that mean? It's so there's a, it's very easy to fall from one day to the next um, and assume that you're going to, you're going to wake up the next day. And it sounds very morbid in the first instance, but actually we do all go to bed like we did, you know, we spoke the other day and we assume that we're going to have this conversation now, but that doesn't always happen. And in, quite a lot of cases that's always that you know it's the last conversation some people have and so not only do we have the opportunity to appreciate the time we have but we also have the opportunity to live with intent we're able to get up every day and achieve what we set out to achieve as opposed to follow what is what is already there what is set in stone for us you know the go to school get some grades go to university get a job get a mortgage get a car get married have some kids retire die that's what we're told. That's what everybody is told to do. And actually, we have we can do more than that. We can do much more than that. And so I feel like it's not just the opportunity, but it's the responsibility for those who can. It's like voting. You know, everyone says if you have the freedom to vote, then you should vote. It's the same with everything else in life. If you've got the, the, the opportunities and the, uh, then you have the responsibility to act on those. And so I feel like 
it is my responsibility to do a little bit more and share these stories because I have the freedom where other people in the world don't. Um, and I can assure you if, if the world roles were reversed for a couple of days, you know, and, and I was, my life was given to somebody who maybe had their parents die when they were two years old and they're being brought up by their five-year-old with a family of 10 in, the, in Central Africa where they don't have the, any of the freedoms that we do. I can assure you they wouldn't just lie in bed and, and chill out for the day if they were swapped with it with my life. They would absolutely grab it and do everything they could with it. And so I feel like I feel like that's part of my my kind of reasoning for, for carrying on as I do. Wise words. Really wise. Uh, now during uh, a recent conversation with you, uh, you mentioned about meeting someone called Alem in Ghana. Yeah. Share with yeah. us. Uh, what was it about? Oh, yeah. um, There's a number of situations like this, but Alan, Alan stood out really because he was just so, it really just kind of encapsulated everything that is so brilliant about the world. And, and again, comes back to my concept of preconceptions. But I was in Ghana, in the capital, in Accra. And every morning I'd wake up um, with my calendar and in my sleepy state, I would look at my calendar and say, right, am I running on my own today or have I got people to run with me? You know, is there a local running club coming to knock on the door and, and, and show me around? And sometimes it would be presidents, sometimes it'd be running clubs, sometimes it'd be thousands of children from different schools like I had in El Salvador. And sometimes it would just be little old me and I'd just get out and, and do my run. But this time um, I had in my diary, a guy called Alan was downstairs in the, in the, uh, in the lobby and he'd wait for me and then we'd go out and he would support my run. And I went downstairs and I noticed he only had one leg. And I thought, right, well, that's gonna be difficult. Let's have a conversation. And I then told me that he was a, a C2 Paralympic cyclist, been in three Olympics, going for a fourth as a British trainer, Ghanaian, but has a British trainer. And he was the most brilliant man with the most amazing attitude to life. He was a polio survivor, couldn't walk at all. He was crawling up until the age of 10, um, which I can imagine is incredibly, I can't imagine it fully, but debilitating to the, to the most degree. And he then managed to transform his life with, he was only in his late 20s, you know, less than 20 years time. He was an Olympian, four Olympics later. Um, and we went out of that, that, that door and I expected him, because he said he was a cyclist, to be jumping on a bicycle to help me, because I had a lot of bicycle supporters, because I didn't want to run the whole distance. And to my amazement, rather than just jumping on a bike, he just picked up some crutches and he crutched 10 kilometres with me. And I'm not talking like a, a slow pace of I'm injured, wait for me, this is an Olympian. And he showed his Olympic attitude. He had this beautiful white smile with these massive teeth and the muscles he had to hold himself up were bigger than my legs and he just stormed through these first 10k and we chatted as we went and I've got a brilliant video of him just kind of trotting along in front of me and we were going I was out of breath um, and I just thought you know what this is a guy who's just grabbed life and made absolutely everything he can out of it and there's a lot of people out there that moan and groan about so much stuff, me included. I think we all do. We always, you know, moan about, oh, my Wi-Fi connection's rubbish, or we get angry at the most ridiculous things. And then this is a guy that's been dealt a particularly bad hand, had his family taken from him, had his leg literally taken from him. And he's now a successful Olympian with a smile on his face and he's not looking back. Um, the extra part of that story is we also had a couple of others supporting us. One was blind in one eye and one only had one arm 
um, both of which were police officers who helped us close the roads while we ran that day. Um, and they were just the most awe-inspiring people. Um, and it certainly made me feel just completely useless. You know, I'm just running around the world having fun. And these these guys have battled that adversity for years. And I'm, I will, I, it's in my book, I talk about him and I will never forget that that guy. Just on your book, uh, we've, we, David's ordered it. We expected it to be, I ordered it straight after our conversation. What's the name of your book? It's called Running the World. It is a very chunky book. Um, when I originally wrote it, it was about three times as thick because there's a hell of a lot of stories to get in there. And then my publisher said, well, we can't actually publish a book that thick because it's impossible. Um, and so we cut it down a little bit, but it's a chunky book. Um, and it has everything from a little bit of my philosophy, kind of the stuff that we're talking about now, but a lot of just stories and tales and anecdotes from one day to the next. Um, and yeah, it's my journey. It's my account, kind of my witness statement of my of the planet and how I see it. Hmm. Boy, I'm looking forward to reading it. And going back to the last one, I think people don't really realize how fortunate they actually are. So you, yeah. you, every day when you wake up with your feet above ground is generally a good day. Yes. Because your feet yes. are in the right place. Now, <laughs> for you in those two years of, of completing this world record, running the marathons, you mentioned Alem, you mentioned these, these two police officers and all the other experiences that you had. Out of all the marathons that you ran, which was the most memorable and why? Oh, well, that is a challenging question. There is a lot of a lot of marathons out there that were incredible. So I suppose you can look at it from various angles. The marathons, the countries, the people, the, the things we witnessed. You know, in Guatemala, running around uh, an erupting volcano with people I just met who then later became very good friends and who I'm still in touch with now. You know, seeing a volcano erupt is one thing, but then running with a load of people and chatting about it and experiencing that. And then in the same country, in the same day, we went and visited a, a brilliant uh, water foundation, which I was using as, uh, as an offsetting project for my carbon emissions for the journey. We then, then had a, a fantastic evening with everybody from that charity. And so Guatemala stands out because of the community and the just the joy that we had in the day. But there's so many other moments that stand out to me. You know, for example, in Panama, I ran with a brilliant running club in Panama and they knew that I was raising for, for prostate cancer um, to fight prostate cancer. And they said, well, we can go and you know, stop in on a few cancer, um, cancer centers, if you like. And I said, yeah, that'd be brilliant. It'd be lovely to meet people and have a chat. And we were obviously filming for the documentary as well. So we I just wanted to make sure everybody was okay and it was okay to do that. And we went along and uh, it's ingrained in my memory and it's included in the book too. We went into this, this room and it was filled with kind of high back, old leather, scruffy green chairs, kind of, you know, the kind of ones you slump into. And they were filled with people of varying ages, but all of them were looked incredibly ill and tired, and they were all hooked up to a drip. And these guys were going through various different rounds of chemo. And what amazed me is that they all looked rough as anything, but the only thing that set them apart was they were all smiling from ear to ear. And it's exactly what you just said about a day above ground is a good day. And that's exactly where they were. Um, and the lady who actually ran that center, um, her dad died a week before of cancer. Um, and she hadn't been back into work since. And because I was coming along to visit, she decided to go into work for the day. 
and we had a really moving conversation about about her dad and about the, the center and what it means to her and that's just one tiny little moment of 196 countries of 674 days plus the extra two years planning and you multiply that up and it's just I suppose to try and answer your question there's lots of those moments that are so so powerful if I could go back to one country and run again it's so difficult um I'm gonna say Nepal I'm gonna say Nepal because it's the same kind of community concept with a hell of a lot of people, but you've also got the huge mountains, um, the cultures, the climate, the the monkeys, the 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 prayer wheels, the the Nepalese culture, um, and I, I feel like Nepal has a very close close place in my heart actually. But I think whenever I get asked this question, I give a different answer because there's too many to choose from. But I'm going with Nepal for now. Well, you're certainly living life to the full, Nick. Uh... Yeah. You've run 828 marathons to date, mm. and uh, which equates to, I can't get my head around this one, it's 21,693.6 miles, the marathons that you've run, but that excludes the actual training mm. mileage, which yeah. comes to 45, just over, just under 45,500 miles just running. Yeah. endurance is obviously in your blood but what is it what is it that it does for you mm. good question i think endurance is a word that can sometimes appear a bit scary and a bit out there and a bit unachievable or unrelatable but i guess running the world summed it up to me because endurance wasn't just physical it was logistical it was financial it was, I think we all experience endurance in various different ways, whether you have to get through stuff and, 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 and carry on. And obviously it means just kind of getting up and, and cracking on when you least want to do so. Um, and what endurance gives me, other than a career and an opportunity to run around the world and experience this brilliant life, which don't get me wrong, that's the headline really. But endurance gives me peace. Endurance gives me an opportunity to, to get in touch with what I'm really capable of. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of people that say to me, oh, I can't ever run a marathon. I can't ever run a marathon. I can't even run a mile. And I've said, well, I can assure you, if you were being chased by a lion, you would probably run for quite a long time. And so it shows you can physically do it. It's just your brain just goes, nah, I'm not going to do that. And probably quite rightly so in many aspects. Um, but then it's quite nice to explore that bit of the mind that so many of us don't use to the fullest. And so... Endurance is, is an incredibly enriching experience because I think anybody that's ever done a marathon for the first time will train for it and get to the start line and either be terrified or completely ready. But regardless of what mindset you're in, you get to mile 22 or 23 and it's hell and you just want to stop. And then when you finish, you think never again. And then a, a week later, you've signed up for another one. And that goes to show how, how a magical endurance is. It's because it gives you that extra something that you can't put your finger on or, or pinpoint. And so um, I've just done that, but I suppose a little bit more. Um, maybe, yeah, maybe <laughs> a little bit more now. <laughs> uh, so on the, the condition of the, the body, the mind, with this preparation that you've, you, you, to complete this world record, and I'm sure there'll be, there'll be other things that you'll be venturing on, and planning on already but 
you'll have had a group of bodies around you as well as a support, both uh, sponsors and uh, medical staff. Uh, did you have a large team that travel with you in, in relation to sponsorship? Was there a large group of people that supported you throughout? Yeah, good, good one. So I, I travelled on my own. So I, I went from country to country entirely on my own. I had a couple of friends who would come out and, and meet me um, and run a few, you know, they'd take a few weeks off work and they'd come and do a couple of countries with me. Um, but most of the time it was, I was on my own. Um, and that was, that was one of the best bits really, because you got to, you got to kind of you know, experience everything in your own head, but that was difficult to, you know, to some extent, because you have to make all the decisions yourself and make sure that am I going to the right airport? There's many times when I was in a taxi going to the airport and not entirely convinced if I was actually going to the airport that my flight was flying out of, um, which amazingly, I didn't miss a single flight of my own doing, which I'm quite proud of. But the team, and again, goes back to what you said, the team were, was quite pretty big. We had about 19 people at its peak, um, which were working with us. Um, anything from my parents to security advisors, to psychologists, to nutritionists, performance manager, um, my coach, everybody that was working behind the scenes and doing all of the hard work. And importantly, my assistant, my assistant who really was kind of my life manager more than my assistant at the time, um, who was Carla and then went on to be Beton. Um, they managed they managed my diary day to day. They made sure that the people I was meeting were ready to meet me, that made sure all of the communication was done and, and kind of I was hidden from all of the trauma that was going on behind the scenes, which didn't always pan out that way, but that was the plan. Um, so there's a big team. And then obviously the sponsors, you know, without all of this, the funding wouldn't have happened. Um, and in, in all honesty, it would have been lovely to have really big names and big sponsors get on board and, and significantly help with loads of you know, thousands of pounds worth of, of cash. But what I had was a really lovely group of people. We ended up having 48 sponsors, some of which would give me a pair of socks. Some of them would give me a couple of thousand pounds. Some of them would enable me to have, uh, you know, they would wipe all of their fees off in order to give their service. For example, the visa company, Universal Visas. Um, I can't thank them enough really because without them we would have spent 20 30 thousand pounds on visas um and so they were fundamental in getting me from a to b and juggling my passports all nine passports which we we ended up filling up in just two years um and then you've got the the sports brands which supported i had adidas as trainers and i had um do do running do sport live as my as my clothing brand which i wore and you'll see in all the pictures um, and then since then, brilliant companies uh, like Bremont, who give, my, give me my watch and, and be able to fund my future trips. Um, and so the, the big, there's a big thing about sponsorship. It's, it's hard. But once you have people that believe in you, it's magical. Um, and, and, and once you have the right people on your side, I think it's very easy. Lots of kids ask me in schools, they say, well, how can I get sponsored? It's not just how you can get sponsors. It's who you want to be sponsored by. And it's not necessarily huge, big names that have got millions of pounds to chuck your way. It's people that are well-meaning and that you want to be working with. Um, and so, yeah, sponsors, my team, my parents, and ultimately me in my own mind managed to get the job done. Nick, I, I'm finding this quite inspirational, but where do you get your inspiration from? You seem to be the, the type of person that thrives on physical and mental challenges. Mm. Uh, someone that loves push the mind and body to the limit. Yeah, I think my my inspiration is 
again, obviously from Kevin, somebody like that is, is very much on a life basis. That's my inspiration. But there's also from very young age, I met um, I met Kelly Holmes when she was doing her, her Olympic career. Um, and we wrote to one another when I was very young. My parents made me sit down and I said, I really want to I want to write to her. And so we wrote letters and amazingly, she wrote back. And then years later, we ended up becoming friends and and organizing little trips and running things and we want to do something out in Malawi together in the future um and so those people inspire me there's also a brilliant my kind of my unofficial mentor who is a guy called Mark Beaumont who many of your listeners may have heard of he, he cycled around the world has the world record for cycling around the world in 80 days um and I don't think anybody in a long time is going to come close to doing what he has done physical endurance wise and not just that managing a family and a real life alongside alongside a career as an adventurer and an endurance person um, and he's done it he's done a very good job and he kind of led the way you know there wasn't anybody for him to to kind of ask as a mentor to him and so what is exceptional about him and I think what how everybody should have in their life is somebody that will will just open up their whole book to you and go look this is how I can help you and want nothing in return. And, and Mark is exactly like that. Um, he's, he's a brilliant guy. And without him, I don't think I would have got my book deal. Without him, I would have made a million mistakes. And he said to me, before you go out on your, on your trip, make sure you, you film all the bits you don't want to film. So it was always there, because we're obviously filming, we wanted to capture everything. And he said, from my experience, you, you always put the camera down when you should always be picking the camera up because it's those moments when you're crying or when you're angry or you're missing missing a plane or you're late or you're in fear. Any of those moments, you pick the camera up. And so I've now got some really great moving videos of me either in tears or frustrated. And I can look back and, and those moments are so powerful. And without those words, I probably would have missed that. So I could carry on and carry on. There's loads of people that inspire me. I mean, my parents included, they've just been absolutely incredible and I couldn't have asked for more. Um, even though I do occasionally ask for more, um, so I think the uh, I think my parents, them, and 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 yeah, there's there's loads of people out there that inspire me. But um, there's also occasional kids that I speak to at schools, and they'd say they'd say some remarkably astute and adult questions, and I'll go, wow, you you're five years old, and you've just come up with that question about you know, did you have any political problems in Uganda? And I'm like, oh. And those kind of people give me a little bit of a kick as well, because I think, yeah, you know what, just because I'm a bit older doesn't mean I'm actually, I know more than you. Now we've touched on the, the first main adventure you did, so to speak. You've recently, mm. I think for everybody listening, wrapping their head around this one is, is also a little bit nuts. You've recently completed a hundred marathons in a hundred days. Yeah. Can you just throw, <laughs> delve into that a little bit? Yeah, so the plan, this was, so what I did was run from the most northerly point in Italy to the most southerly point of Italy. Um, and this was at a time when lockdown was was setting in. Um, I think we were just coming out of lockdown one, I think off the top of my head. And we were supposed to be going over to Malawi to run north to south of Malawi. And instead, because Malawi was closed, thought well rather than just not do anything let's try and find a way in which we can do something and at that point Italy was nice and open um, and so we thought right let's, let's run north to south of Italy. I could have just done 
north to south quite quickly in a straight line, which is about a third of the miles. But I thought, well, let's see everything. Let's see all the good bits. So we're going to zigzag. And, and my girlfriend, Nikki, and I, we planned a route. We live in our van with our, with our puppy. And so we thought, right, let's make this a, a bit of a jolly, a bit of a fun trip where I can get some running in, get some good training miles in, but we can also see all of Italy. Um, and so it was 100 marathons, 100 days. That was goal number one. Number two, see all of Italy. And goal number three was to get to Sicily before on Christmas Eve. So finish on Christmas Eve. Um, and amazingly, we did all of that. But I can assure you it was less of a jolly than we anticipated because it was quite difficult at times. Um, and yeah, we, we, we kind of came up a few bumps and bumps and scrapes on the road and, and which we kind of had to overcome to get to the finish line. But um, we made it. And I think we've got very fond memories of a, a pretty tough hundred days. I can imagine. So what's next? What's the next venture? What's the next task or the next challenge? Well, so we've got a, a big mission that's going on in, in 2023. This is what I've kind of, I mean, this, this started to be in the, in the planning phases, even while I was running the world, because we knew what I wanted to do in the future, and it was going to take a long time to get planning. Um, I can't tell you too much about it, but I can say that it's going to be another couple of world records and world firsts in 23. Um, and all, all of the stuff I'm doing now is to prepare my body for it. It is going to be bigger than I have ever done. And I won't be able to do anything more than it ever because there's literally not enough time. Um, and so what I'm approaching in 2023, I am scared of, I am excited for, and I'm going to be running a long way. Let's just leave it at that. For 23. Now, I can tell you a bit what's happening in the near future. So 2021, I have four four expeditions planned. Um, we're going to run north to south of, Mala uh, of New Zealand very soon. Um, that's supposed to be in March, depending on if the government will let me in or not. Um, we might have to postpone that one, depending on what's happening with COVID. So north to south of New Zealand, that's number one. Secondly, we do a circumnavigation, a world first circumnavigation of the, the very edge of Iceland. Um, so circumnavigation, getting Iceland is going to be amazing, seeing Iceland. Um, we're then going to finally do my north to south of Malawi, which we were supposed to be doing in August, but we substituted for Italy. So that's going to be great. I'm really looking forward to Malawi because not only is it completely planned and ready to go, but we've got schools we're working with. We've got communities. We've got some nonprofits. We're going to be giving out malaria uh, met, uh, nets, mosquito nets and malaria meds. Um, we're going to be doing some stuff with some water foundations. Um, and it's going to hopefully be a bit of a Pied Piper effect. We have some kids coming along and running with us. Um, and then the final final little celebration to, to top the end of the year off is uh, a couple of weeks running circumnavigating Bali um, and so we're going to go over to Bali get the whole team over and uh, and have a bit of a knees up I hope um, whilst running potentially I don't know a couple of hundred miles a day 100 maybe 120 miles a day for two or three days to get that done quickly and then put our feet up um, but watch this space that may not turn out how that plans but that's fine that's okay um and then the last 90 days of the year is the speaking tour so we're going to go back to speaking in theaters i do two and a half hour sets in theaters around the world the world um where we we talk about my journey we share some videos we've got a little preview of the documentary um and i'm looking forward to getting back into some schools and and, and sharing sharing the journey with some of the kids and, and and working with them to see what their goals are like so Got a busy year um, and I, I would like COVID to frankly bugger off so we can get on with it. You're very busy actually yeah, and you're doing things that you love doing. 
Uh, I've got, yeah. we got loads of questions because as you're answering our questions, I have another question. What's the longest you've ever run in one day? In one day, I think I stand at 122 miles, I think. 122 uh, miles in one day. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and I actually, I did that on a treadmill, believe it or not. <laughs> um, um, that was not that wasn't very fun um, but I, I think I've got quite close to that a few times I did a I did a 350 mile run um, in one go but that was over multiple days because there's not enough not enough hours in the day unfortunately but yeah that treadmill run was was quite a I did that for, um, for cancer research a few years ago and I thought oh, well, we'll just we'll just do a few miles on the treadmill and I thought well let's run for a day and enjoy it and stupidly I picked the only gym that had nothing else in it apart from a broken TV. And so I managed to watch the Weather Channel on repeat for 24 hours whilst running on a treadmill uh, for 120, 22 miles. Maybe it was 124, I'm not sure, but that wasn't particularly interesting. And I've not done, I've not actually been on a treadmill since then. And I think that was about six years ago. So um, yeah, 100, 120 odd miles in a, in a day is the answer. You probably run the treadmill. The treadmill probably squeaking after you'd finished. I'm really glad <laughs> it had finished. Uh, now, look, having having achieved so much in your life so far, world endurance records. There'll be people listening here that are just thinking about getting off the, the settee, let alone going for a run. But what advice would you give to someone who is hesitant and holding back from following their dream? There, I, I, that's a very easy answer for me. You have not only responsibility like we touched on it, but also when you say yes to stuff, um, there's a brilliant film with, um, with Jimmy, uh, what's his name? his name, called Yes Man. The film's called Yes Man. And it's a ridiculous concept, it's a comedy, um, but it's just ba basically saying yes to anything that you, is given to you. Um, things like anything and everything you've got to say yes to and so my my kind of response to that is if you take a risk on stuff and you think well I could lose this I could lose the stability of a job I could lose x y and z what you can gain is often far more than you can envisage so you may think oh running around the world I'm going to be able to see the world and take lots of pictures and meet lots of people but what it's done for me is tenfold a hundredfold what I anticipated and so when you're weighing up the risks of should I or shouldn't I I think there should also be like a, almost a, uh, a standalone mandatory factor of you whatever you think the pros are of taking that risk then multiply them by a ten or by a hundred because there's often lots of things out of your sight that will that will it will give you um, and I think the other side of that is is and on a practical note is if you are hesitant about doing this stuff whatever it may be it might just be I want to work a bit less to spend more time with my children. I want to take up that sing singing lesson that I've been trying to do. I want to go and climb Everest, whatever it may be. There is a way in which you can make that work where you don't have to sacrifice everything you think you have to sacrifice. Um, you know, I, I could have very easily done this trip and not given up my job. I could have said, right, I'm going to go back to work afterwards. And that's fine. You know, that, yeah, that's absolutely plausible. I could go and get a normal job and go back to work. Um, just so happens I don't want to do that. Um, but it's the same with the same with everybody else in the world. We, if you take that chance, you win more than you can possibly imagine. 
Um, and if you can have people around you that can help you, that was my, that was my second point. Um, if you can have people around you that you can bounce ideas off and that you can kind of lean on when things get tough or, uh, and also just expect things not to go too well. You know, if you take a risk with stuff, it's not going to be an, an easy ride. You're not just going to jump in and it's all going to, all going to be dandy. You get to, you get to, you get to feel those bumps, but those bumps are okay. It's part of the journey and it's much better than if you sit back and go, well, maybe not. There's that famous phrase, which is the most, um, the most wealthy, wealthy place in the world is, is, is the graveyard. It's because where everybody's dreams just go to die because people die with all of these dreams and they haven't tried to achieve them. And so if you can just try, just get, get off your backside and try, then it'll be amazing what you can achieve. So um, the answer is do not hesitate. Plan it, think about it, but whatever you do, make it happen at, at, at all costs. Nick, final question for you. Whenever it is that you retire from endurance running and what it is that you have been doing, what do you want your legacy to be? Legacy is brilliant. And I think it should be in the forefront of most people's minds when they, they kind of go about their daily life. I want my legacy to, to be about leaving, leaving the world better than we found it. So I think we all have a responsibility to do a bit of that. Um, and to be able to follow your dreams whilst combating issues that matter to the planet and the people. So what's stopping me making running my life and enjoying it, and then also doing some good in the process, nothing. And everybody has that, that same opportunity. Um, and I hope that people will remember me as, yeah, that crazy marathon man, that runner, but actually he had some, some soul and purpose for what he was doing. So. I'd love to die having kind of squeezed every little bit out of life and, and done some good in the process. And I think it's actually not that difficult to do. Nick, thank you very, very much. It's been very informative. It's been very inspirational and we can't thank you enough uh, for, for sharing your stories. And equally, we wish you well in your new, whatever those new projects are gonna be looking like. Uh, it sounds like there's going to be one that's going to be a life changer again for you, but good luck with all of that. And thanks again. No, thank you very much for, for chatting. It's been a pleasure and hopefully we'll stay in touch and maybe get you both out doing some miles with me. Thanks for tuning into the Golders podcast today. If you enjoyed this episode and you haven't already subscribed, please do so. Your continued support is highly appreciated and it means so much to us knowing that the content that's being produced is providing value in people's lives. If you would like to know more or get more information from us, you can follow us on Twitter at Gold Dust Podcast, and also you can visit our website at thegolddustcoach.com. Thank you, everybody. <laughs>